Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. Whenever I pick up a patient in the ED, I'm always delighted to see the chief complaint of weakness. It's almost as exciting as the chief complaint of dizziness, but not quite as exhilarating as the chief complaint of weak and dizzy. Today, with the help of ED doc George Perfiris, who's won more teaching awards than any doc I've known in my 20-plus year career, welcome Dr. Perfiris. Thanks, Dr. Hellman. Nice to be back. And also Dr. Roy Baskind, neurologist at North York General, creator of a brand new neuropodcast called The Cephalopod, which you can find at thecephalopod.ca. Welcome, Dr. Baskind. Thanks, Anton. Happy to be here. Well, with the help of these gentlemen, we'll turn the assessment of the weak patient into a satisfying, frustration-free experience for you by laying out a simple approach and feeding you the key clinical pearls that will help you clinch the diagnosis. Now, we're not going to cover generalized malaise or fatigue from dehydration or anemia or sepsis. We're not going to cover hypoglycemia, polypharmacy, or medication side effects. We're not going to get into the detail of stroke, traumatic spinal cord injuries, or chronic neurogenerative disorders, all of which can present with the chief complaint of weakness. What we are going to do is we are going to throw out the word weakness and instead zero in on the specific symptoms of loss of true neuromuscular strength. We're going to dig into the patterns of decreased true neuromuscular strength and how they can narrow our differential. We're going to discuss key associated symptoms that will narrow our differential even further. We'll simplify the distinction between upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron and see how that can narrow our differential even further. And we'll talk about how to understand the muscle power scale properly and review the key features of the most emergent muscle weakness diagnoses we need to act on in the ED. So without further ado, let's jump into our first case. A 49-year-old man with no past medical history apart from sinusitis presents to your ED with the chief complaint of difficulty walking. He reported a three-week history of shortness of breath, headache, and cough. He got a COVID swab a few days ago that came back positive. The cough had been worsening in the last couple of days, and he noticed diffuse muscle aches and numbness in his feet for one week, to the point where he started using a cane to ambulate. There's no fever or chills, no particular back pain aside from the diffuse muscle aches. He denies IV drug use or any spinal surgery or injections. There's no travel history, no sick contacts. On exam, vital signs were normal except for a heart rate of 105. GCS is 15. Pupils were equal and reactive to light. Gait appeared slow but otherwise normal. There was no pronator drift and Romberg is normal. Sensation was normal in all extremities, and strength was 4 to 5 in both upper and lower extremities. Reflexes were not checked. Labs showed a normal CBC, lights, liver enzymes, and creatinine. 
the CK was moderately elevated at 600. He was diagnosed with viral myositis and sent home. He returns to the ED three days later to see you. He's triaged to your intermediate area in a wheelchair. Now he complains of worsening lower limb paresthesias and says he's unable to walk due to weakness in both legs. You ask about cauda equina syndrome, cord compression stuff like urinary retention and saddle anesthesia, and it's all negative. His repeat CK is normal at 150. What has also changed is that he now has one out of five power in his lower limbs, three out of five power in his upper limbs. You check sensation and he has slightly reduced sensation to pinprick in his feet, his ankles and shins. Despite multiple tries at eliciting reflexes, you can't get any lower limb reflexes. Neck is supple, there's no vertebral tenderness and no saddle anesthesia. Rectal tone is normal. So this is a bit more detailed of a case than we normally do on EM cases, um, but that's because neurology is insanely complicated. <laughs> so Dr. Perfiris, just give us your general thoughts on this patient's presentation. So you, you have a, a 49-year-old generally healthy male who comes in with what sounds like your typical viral illness, maybe an atypical pneumonia. But now, of course, it's COVID time, and of course, he's going to turn out to have COVID, so his swab was positive for COVID. But he's also complaining of the numbness in his feet for a week, which is a little bit atypical for a viral or even a COVID-type infection. And the fact that a 49-year-old male was using a cane is just also a little bit unusual as well. The problem here is that there were no reflexes checked. And I think anytime there's any neurological complaint like numbness, if you don't do the reflexes, you're sort of setting yourself up for trouble. The other unusual thing about this case is that they diagnosed viral myositis with a CK of 600. I mean, 600 is high, but the cases of myositis that I've seen, usually the, the CK is in the thousands. And we're talking about you know, five, six thousands, maybe 10,000. So to diagnose viral myositis with a 600 CK, maybe stretching it a little bit. Now, it's always easier in retrospect. And I've been there because actually I had almost the exact same case. And they were complaining of numbness in their feet with a viral illness. And at the time I had checked his reflexes and they were like one plus at that time. And, you know, I sort of brushed it off. I wasn't even really thinking about uh, the serious diagnosis. But I was working the eMERGE, you know, two days later and he came in and he had, you know, he couldn't move his legs and he had areflexia. And ultimately the diagnosis was made in the emergency department. And Dr. Baskin, uh, your thoughts on this one? I think one way to think about it is to first look at his uh, initial complaint was not just weakness. So he also had numbness in his feet for one week and also the, the muscle aches. So as soon as you hear weakness and numbness together, that would, in my mind, immediately move you, let's say, proximally from the muscle because uh, there's numbness involved. So that would either be in the nerve, like the peripheral nerves, which carrying sensation back to the spinal cord and motor innervation to the muscle, or the spinal cord, or higher up. So I think immediately the diagnosis of viral myositis is suspect because the patient had numbness in their feet. And then, yeah, I agree with George, the CK is a little bit 
low to be, it's going to look positive to you. It's quote unquote abnormal, but it's not that high. You might get a 600 CK from, you know, running up all the hospital stairs to the seventh floor. If you needed to go and get a reflex hammer from the neurologist who was up there with two and you were seeing this guy, but you didn't have your reflex hammer with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other thing about viral myositis, so a myositis would generally affect the proximal muscles, like the big muscles, the ones that, you you know, your, your hip flexors, your hip extensors. And so we're not exactly sure what kind of weakness this guy had, but if you have a problem in the brain, say on the motor cortex, the motor cortex is biased toward the distal musculature, like most of the big motor neuron cell bodies in the motor strip are going to innovate your hands and your mouth and your feet. And the proximal musculature doesn't get much innervation. And that is carried on all the way through the nervous system until you get to the muscles. And so if you have a myositis, you're going to have proximal weakness, but preserve distal strength. So that would be another way to sort it out initially. Brilliant. Love it. So we're going to get into all the details of how to sort these kinds of presentations out in a definitive approach that we're now going to get into. But before we kind of get into the full approach, we have to define what weakness even is. When patients complain of weakness, they could mean general malaise, fatigue, or anhedonia on the one hand. And on the other hand, they could mean decreased neuromuscular strength in a limb. So Dr. Baskin, how do you actually sort out on history what the patient means by weakness. Yeah, that's a great way to start. So I have compiled a list of synonyms for you, Anton and George, over the last few months of patients talking about weakness. Can I read them to you? Absolutely. Sure. Do you mind if I read them in accents (laughs) based on their origin of which patient told them to me? Um, Okay, so heavy, tired, not working, gave out, like rubber, no energy, powerless, lame, not cooperating, wouldn't do what I wanted, uncoordinated, pup, weird, like it weighed a ton, like they were in cement, wobbly, dizzy, lightheaded. So I'll just pause there. So sometimes if a patient's legs become weak, they might tell you that they were dizzy or lightheaded. Knees gave out, dropping things, feeble, frail, faulty, limp, gimpy, numb. I have had patients who describe like the feeling of heaviness you might get with a stroke where your limb becomes weak as numb. So that's the patient giving you the symptoms. And then sometimes when the symptoms are communicated to you by another healthcare professional, say a triage nurse or nurse or resident or medical student or someone who's referred the patient to the ED, they might also use the word weakness. And the reason that I don't like that word is because it's used commonly to describe all kinds of feelings as you were just discussing, like uh, you know, a lack of energy or malaise. And so I think as physicians, we should talk about power, loss of motor power. And that's really, if you look at the MRC grades for weakness, which we'll get into, they're really grades of motor power. Um, And so I think that's the term we should use when we're communicating to one another about what's going on with the patient. First of all, you have a very, very difficult job to ask you, Baskin. I mean, if if you're getting patients telling you those things. Anyhow, um, I feel for you, man. (laughs) 
that's a great way for us to communicate to each other rather than saying weakness, saying power. But how do you actually bring out of the patient that decrease in power? How do you actually ask them? Yeah, that's a great question. So so the first thing I'd ask them is, did you lose power in your limb like you were paralyzed, like you couldn't move it? And then if I really want to interrogate that, I'll ask him, you know, were you able to raise up your arm? Could you hold on to something? You can ask questions based on function. So for example, were you able to open the door of the car when you came to the emergency room? Were you able to turn the keys? Who got you dressed when you came here? You know, so you can ask specific questions like that based on their recent function to really interrogate it. I think once you get down to the nitty gritty and you explain to patients, was it a feeling of heaviness? Was it, you know, something to do with the sensation? Did you just feel tired? Usually they can, I don't want to make our patients sound like they're not intelligent. They'll know if they're weak, but I think it's just a matter of making sure that you're speaking the right language at the beginning and you can explain to them the distinction in your mind. All right. Dr. Perferis, do you have any any tricks? You've been practicing for about 25 years now. Uh, Any tricks when you're taking a history to try and tease out what they mean by weakness? I usually ask them, what have they lost? What can they no longer do? Um, And it's just as simple as, you know, I I can't get up out of a chair or I'm driving and I can't press the gas pedal or the brake. I can't shave. I can't comb my hair. Uh, So I usually ask them, what have they lost and are unable to do anymore? Yeah, great question. All right, so that's teasing out what people mean by weakness and erasing that term in our vocabulary and just talking about power. I want to talk next about the geography of weakness. So once you're convinced that the patient actually has decreased power, we need to sort out the pattern of that decrease in power or the geography of weakness. So Dr. Baskin, can you kind of go through for us uh, the different patterns that we should be thinking about? Yeah, for sure. This is the localization of neurology that's so important. And I think we neurologists try to make it sound super complicated so we can stay in business. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's pretty straightforward, I think. Uh, So I think let's focus on a couple of patterns of weakness that I think would be most applicable to the emergency department. So I think the first one is paraplegia, you know, weakness of both legs, which is apropos to our first case here. And so there... I immediately think first spinal cord and second peripheral nerves. So immediately my differential is generated by the location. If the patient's coming in with loss of motor power on one side of the body, of course you immediately think about it as being from the opposite hemisphere of the brain. If it's involving face, arm, and leg, then you think about it as something subcortical. And if it's mainly involving face and arm and also has accompanying cortical symptoms, you would think about a cortical stroke or something affecting the cortex. If all four limbs are involved, then you could think high spinal cord, cervical cord, peripheral nerves, unlikely to involve the arms and legs simultaneously, and I suppose a myopathy as well. So those basic patterns, the legs together, one side of the body, or all four limbs, it's very simple and straightforward and immediately 
you know, you've got your differential diagnosis for your big picture, then you can start looking at sister signs and the timing. That's so awesome. I, I wish they taught that to us in medical school in the first place, because I just remember the neurologist going on for like an hour and a half about 50 million different patterns. <laughs> I think, yeah, generally we try and confuse medical students and residents so they, you know, have to consult us later on in life. Yeah. That's our secret code. So those are the main patterns of muscle weakness. Let's talk a little bit more about patterns, but this time about the evolution of the pattern over time. So how the pattern changes over time. Dr. Perfiris, how do you use the evolution of the pattern of decreased power over time to help narrow your differential diagnosis? Excellent question. So timing can be broken up into first abrupt onset, second slowly progressive, and third fluctuating or sort of intermittent. If it's abrupt onset, it's almost always going to be vascular. So whether it's going to be an ischemic or a hemorrhagic stroke, that's pretty much what we're going to see in the emergency department. The one that has the long differential diagnosis is the slowly progressive. And we're talking about, you know, over hours, days, and maybe even weeks. These can be divided up into the geography of how it presents. So you can have ascending weakness. So it starts in the feet and slowly work its way up towards the head. And your differential there is GBS, so Guillain-Barre syndrome, transverse myelitis, and tick paralysis. The descending pattern, so it starts in the head, so it starts with the sort of the ocular and, and the bulbar symptoms and then works its way down towards the feet. Your differential there, myasthenia gravis, botulism, and maybe diphtheria, which is obviously very, very rare. And then you have the diffuse pattern where basically it hits you both in the upper extremity and the lower extremity, basically everywhere at the same time. And the differential there is also very broad. So you can have your periodic paralysis, and this can be either hypokalemic or hyperkalemic, and even thyrotoxic. You can have the uh, polymyositis or dermatomyositis. You can have toxins such as uh, organic phosphate uh, toxicity. And then you can have the really sort of the weird and the wonderful, the fish toxins. I love talking about fish toxins. So things like ciguatoxin and puffer fish and, and paralytic shellfish. I thought those were only like Simpsons episodes, like pufferfish to toxicity. <laughs> Remember that Simpsons episode? I, I, yes, I do. <laughs> I, I, th I think you're right. I think it's probably more likely we'll see it on TV than we'll see it in real life. But uh, the pathophysiology is always very interesting about these very rare cases. Sorry to interrupt. So ascending, descending, and generalized. Uh, generalized are some of those really rare things. But l luckily... Things like thyrotoxicosis, hyper-K, hypo-K, usually those we can pick up because there's something else obvious going on. I have two cases, um, and they frequently come back to, the, to our department. And the first time we saw them, his chief complaint is, I can't walk, I can't move anything. And this was on a kind of Saturday night, and we all thought he was intoxicated. We went out there, and he actually had like one out of five weakness in all the extremities. And he had said that this has happened to him before. And then once he said that, then I remember something vaguely in medical school about, you know, these weird periodic paralysis. And then we checked his potassium and it was like 1.5. Um, a lot of times they can be very difficult to diagnose because 
when they come to the department, sometimes they're already resolved and you measure the potassium at that point and it's normal. And you're like, oh, this is clearly a site case. Um, but just if it's repetitive, most of them turn out to be hypokalemic and they tend to be exacerbated by high carbohydrate loads uh, or exercise. And if you can remember that, then you can make this rare diagnosis. Great pearl. Okay. Sorry. So we digressed a little bit. So back to the timing, you talked about the abrupt onset. You talked about sort of minutes to hours to days, gradual onset and ascending, descending and generalized. And there's a relatively short differential diagnosis for each of those in terms of the most common things. I mean, we can get into some really rare, weird and wonderful things, but by the time we get to that point, we've already consulted Dr. Baskin. That's right. And then just the last timing one is the fluctuating or sort of the intermittent pattern, uh, which of course, we just talked about this, like the periodic paralysis, but my senior gravis definitely would fit in that pattern where they'll have it one day and then they won't have it the next day, or they'll have it more in the evening and not in the morning. So the fluctuating intermittent pattern as well. I really love George's breakdown there in terms of the timing of symptoms. The one thing that I would say that's, I think, important for emergency room physicians and can be misleading. So the abrupt onset of a stroke is pertinent for either cardioembolic stroke or thromboembolic stroke, like from your MCA occlusion that comes from your ICA plaque or AFib. But a small vessel stroke, you know, that might give you hemibody pure motor syndrome or hemibody pure sensory syndrome, they can often have a very slow stuttering onset. And that can often be very misleading because as an emergency room physician, you're thinking stroke, hyperacute onset. And often the diagnosis is not thought of because the symptoms had the stuttering even over days. And that's a tiny little vessel that's slowly occluding, not from an embolic blockage, but from a the vessels slowly blocking off. So that's just one exception to the rule that a stroke presents with a hyperacute onset. Wow, what an amazing pitfall pearl. Pitfall pearl? How do I say that? That's an amazing black pearl. A black pearl. <laughs> a black you pearl. Co- you just coined the term, Anton. <laughs> <laughs> it's an excellent pitfall, although pitfalls aren't usually described as excellent. We learn that stroke comes on quickly, but subcortical strokes due to small vessel disease often have the stuttering onset. Amazing. So far, we've talked about throwing out the word weakness and using the word power instead. We've talked about the patterns of weakness. We've talked about the timing of these patterns of weakness. I want to now talk about associated symptoms. So the patient that we presented at the top of the podcast had paresthesias. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other associated symptoms that can help narrow your differential in the patient with a decreased muscle power. Dr. Baskin, what are the sorts of associated symptoms that you ask about to get you thinking about narrowing the differential? Yeah. Okay. So I thought about how to present this succinctly. I think I got five. I think that's a, a good number to just, you know, remember as you're listening to this podcast on your bicycle or in your car. Number one, if there's language dysfunction, so dysphasia, patient can't speak properly, you immediately think of the dominant, usually left hemisphere. Number two, neglect. Uh, so the patient's not paying attention to one side, 
either of their body or of the world, that's going to be right hemisphere. So those would be the two sister signs to weakness coming from the left and right cortices. Neither of those will necessarily come from the patient as their symptom will come from a caregiver or you'll notice the neglect when you're examining the patient. So that's in the cortex. Now we go down to the subcortical area. If you have weakness subcortically from a small vessel stroke, usually it's a pure motor syndrome, so it doesn't have any sister signs, which is a, a black pearl or uh, it's an absence of symptoms that's important, uh, like George pointed out with the history. Then you come to the brainstem, where you would have accompanying brainstem symptoms, which I think most people are familiar with, double vision, dysarthria, difficulty swallowing. You could even throw in incoordination there with clear cerebellar signs. So that's the uh, third thing, the brainstem symptoms. We had language dysfunction. We had neglect, brainstem symptoms. Number four, the spinal cord. So almost invariably with a spinal cord problem, you have bladder dysfunction. So that would be the tip-off that there's something wrong in the spinal cord if the bladder's involved. If the bladder's spared, it's unlikely that you have a spinal cord problem. Of course, this is a generality, not always. And then I think the fifth sister sign to look for is absence of reflexes, which will come with any neuropathy that's causing weakness. And uh, there are many others, but I think those are five really easy, big picture sister signs to look for to help you localize things quite quickly. I love it. So associated symptoms after you've sorted out the pattern of decreased power, number one is left hemisphere stuff like dysphagia. Number two, right hemisphere stuff like neglect. Number three, we're talking brainstem, so diplopia, difficulty swallowing, et cetera, bulbar symptoms. Mm -hmm. Number four, spinal cord, and really the hallmark there is bladder dysfunction. And finally, absence of reflexes equals a neuropathy until proven otherwise. The second of the five associated symptoms to remember was neglect, indicating a right hemisphere problem. I find it sometimes difficult to elicit neglect. I mean, sometimes it's totally obvious, or sometimes the nurse tells me, what's a way to actually test neglect at the bedside? Yeah. Okay. So I think the first thing is observation. So usually the patient's visual attention is directed toward the side that's not neglected. So typically the right cortex, the right parietal cortex is sort of your attention center, you could say, as it pertains to neglect. So usually neglect is neglect of either the left side of the world to the patient or the left side of the body. And so typically the patient will be turned toward their right. Their head might be turned toward their right. If you approach the bed from their left side, they may not see you. They may not attend to you. So that's the observation part of it. And then to test it formally, you can't really distinguish a hemi-field cut from visuospatial neglect. So you would check the same way you would a visual field, and they're not seeing the neglected side. And you know, then it comes down to whether there's a visual problem or a neglect problem. But for you, that's the hemispatial neglect. And then for hemisensory neglect, it's actually really easy to test and quite rewarding when you find it because it's so interesting and cool. You tap on the patient's forearm on one side, ask them if they feel that, they'll tell you right or left. 
You tap on the other side, ask them which side they feel it, right or left. And then you tap both at the same time and you ask them which side they feel it on and they will feel it on the non-neglected side, say the right side. And that's called double simultaneous extinction, meaning when you simultaneously tap, meaning double on both sides, there's extinction on the neglected side. It sounds complicated to test. It's super easy and it's very reliable for picking up neglect. And it take you three seconds to do. When you're checking for visuospatial neglect, you would check it the same way that you would check the visual fields. The patient would usually not see the neglected side, similar to a hemi-field cut. But if the visuospatial neglect isn't severe, they might see that side. But then when you show them a stimulus on both sides of their visual field, right and left at the same time, they won't see the neglected side. And that is very similar when you're checking for sensory neglect with a double simultaneous extinction. So in other words, double simultaneous extinction can either be visual or sensory. Now that that's a true clinical pearl, no black pearl or pitfall pearl. <laughs> Great. So that's how to sort out neglect, which I have to be honest, I've only done the observation part of that, where as you described, you go onto the patient's left side and they don't even realize that you're there. Then that's when I pick it up. But otherwise, I didn't know about the double tapping trick. That's great. There's one more associated symptom I do want to talk about aside from the five that Dr. Baskin just reviewed, and that is tachypnea, which is an especially important one for ED docs to know about because that's when patients can really run into trouble, the, one that, the ones that have uh, neuromuscular dysfunction of the diaphragm. So Dr. Perfiris, why is tachypnea such an important symptom to ask about in the patient with loss of power in their extremities, let's say? Tachypnea is often the first sign of impending respiratory failure. And our job as eMERGE docs, first and foremost, is to secure the ABCs. And the danger with any of these neuromuscular disorders is that, you know, whether it starts from the head and works its way down or you know, from the feet and works its way up, eventually it'll hit the lung muscles and uh, they won't be able to breathe and they'll have a, a respiratory arrest. Tachypnea is a sign of impending respiratory uh, failure because as you become more weak, your vital capacity and your tidal volumes decrease and you compensate by increasing your respiratory rate. And so for a while, their O2 sat and their PCO2 will actually be fine. Using the O2 sat or the PCO2 is actually can be very dangerous. because They're often a late, late sign. So if you take tachypnea as a predictor for respiratory failure, it'll often guide you in the proper direction. Some of the other clinical signs, of course, are the usual things we look for. So inability to handle secretions, voice changes, inability to cough or, or choking when, when they cough or choking when they swallow. Even something simple as being able to hold your head up or lifting your head up off the stretcher is a good predictor of respiratory failure. The big pitfall, I suppose, there is assuming someone, you know, when we see someone who's tachypneic, we either think about a primary respiratory problem and usually the O2SAT is low, or if the O2SAT is normal and they're tachypneic, we think that they're acidotic. I mean, that's kind of the classic teaching. This is another one to add to the tachypneic patient who's got a normal O2SAT. And especially if they're not acidotic, uh, you really got to be thinking about a neuromuscular disorder and ask about decreased power, decreased strength. Excellent. Let's talk a little bit more about 
airway in these types of patients. What are the sort of general indications for securing the airway for endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation in the patient with a, a neuromuscular disease? So any of those clinical signs that we, we had just discussed, including tachypnea. So if you have tachypnea, I think it would be prudent to call the respiratory therapist down, and then they can actually give you some objective data. And there's these famous sort of 20, 30, 40 rule that's, that's mentioned a lot in the literature. So if they have a vital capacity that's less than 20 cc's per kilogram, or a negative inspiratory pressure of less than 30, or an expiratory pressure of less than 40, these are all indications for intubation and ventilation. All right. And Dr. Baskin, anything to add there in terms of airway considerations in the patient with neuromuscular disease? Yeah, I think the two disorders that come to mind in terms of airway trouble as it pertains to the patient with problems with power or weakness are Guillain-Barre syndrome and myasthenia. As George pointed out, neck flexion weakness, which would have similar innervation to the diaphragm, is a very good thing to check as a poor man's way of siding with your patients in trouble. So you have a myasthenic who comes in and they're having a lot of trouble with swallowing and limb weakness, and it's important to check neck flexion. So have them push their forehead against your hand off the bed as hard as they can. Most people, that's a very strong muscle. You should n- not be able to overcome them. And so in both Guillain-Barre syndrome and myasthenia gravis, that's often a good prognostic indicator that there's going to be some respiratory weakness. And uh, there's literature on that. I'm not like facile with it, but there are papers on that. Great. So some of the kind of bedside clues to whether a patient might require plastic in their trachea are them simply being very tachypneic despite a normal oxygen saturation. And if they have very weak uh, neck flexion, if they can't lift their head off the bed or if they're very weak against resistance from your hand, you want to be calling down your respiratory therapist and trying to get some objective numbers and set up for an RSI. Let's talk a little bit more about RSI because RSI is going to be a little bit different in these patients. The ones who do require RSI, let's say it's necessary based on the things we just discussed. How are you going to modify your RSI for the patient with neuromuscular disease compared to your usual RSI? Dr. Perfiris? Just to keep it simple, I think it would be just easier to use a non-depolarizing drug uh, such as rocuronium instead of using a depolarizing drug like succinylcholine. I know a lot of this is theoretical and it's not supposed to happen for about three days after uh, any sort of neuromuscular disease or damage, but the theory is that you have upregulation of the acetylcholine receptors. And if you use a depolarizing drug like succinylcholine, every time it depolarizes that neuron, it sort of leaks potassium and and, uh, you're at risk of, of causing hyperkalemia. So as a general rule, if you're, if you're suspecting any neuromuscular disease or there's been any sort of muscle damage, such as a crush injury or burn, I think just to keep it simple, just using non-depolarizing paralytic. Great. Yeah. And in some of my reading when preparing for the podcast, I was reading about something about decreasing the dose of your rocuronium. Is there anything to that? I think that's if you're suspecting it's myasthenia gravis because the, the pathophysiology there is basically you're destroying all your 
uh, neuromuscular junction acetylcholine receptors. So you have very few receptors. So if you give a, a normal dose, uh, it's too much. So you can get away with using you know, a, a fifth or even a tenth of the regular dose if you're pretty sure it's myasthenia gravis. All right. So the two things to know about modifying the RSI are generally avoid sucks just in case, even though it's mostly theoretical that it's contraindicated. And then the second thing is if you do suspect myasthenia, then you should lower your dose of rocuronium. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade is constantly improving their technology. They've got this brand new native mobile app, and they've got a robust reporting module that captures all HR metrics and integrates with payroll systems. Don't settle for software that's being farmed by other vendors. Your needs change constantly, and their software should keep pace. Go to metricade.com slash emcases for further details. Let's move on. We've talked about now the patterns of decreased power. We've talked about the timing of decreased power. We've talked about the associated symptoms, including tachypnea, and went on a little side path there about uh, securing the airway. Next, I wanted to talk about distinguishing upper motor neuron from lower motor neuron. Now, this is going to be important to help narrow your differential diagnosis even further, and this is all in the physical exam. So, Dr. Baskin, what's your kind of quick and dirty way of differentiating upper motor neuron from lower motor neuron on the physical exam? Anton, I'm so glad you asked me about that and not about the details of intubating a patient. (laughs) I had a little cartoon at the beginning of COVID that said, stay home unless you want a neurologist intubating you. (laughs) Um, So this is taught in such a confusing way in medical school, and um, it lingers on through most physicians' careers, and that's a tragedy. So I think the most important thing to distinguish upper motor neuron from lower motor neuron, and I think if you think about patients you've seen, this is so obvious, but never really spoken about is almost always lower motor neuron weakness is much weaker than upper motor neuron weakness. So think about someone with a Bell's palsy, which is lower motor neuron. Their face is extremely weak. It's obvious to see they can tell you their face is weak. They're losing water out of the side of their mouth. And the degree of muscle weakness is extreme because the end organ is damaged. That's the lower motor neuron. Whereas you have a patient who's had a stroke, they have some flattening of the nasolabial folds, or their mouth is a little bit asymmetric, and their spouse notices it, but the patient doesn't necessarily notice it. They're not that weak. They have been weakened or lost power very proximally, but there's still other neurons innervating the muscles, so they're not that weak. So the first distinction is that lower motor neuron weakness is weaker than upper motor neuron weakness. A wrist drop from a radial nerve palsy is much weaker than someone who's had a large stroke who may still have some wrist extension power. So number one is the degree of weakness. That's never taught, but it's intuitive and obvious and I think probably gels with most people's experience. And then the second thing that I think is very important is that upper motor neuron weakness often comes with slowness. So I like to call that corticospinal tract slowness. So sometimes people have a stroke, they're not that weak, but if you get them to do maneuvers on the examination, which we can get into, like foot tapping 
or rolling of the arms, you'll see that the weak side is slow. And that's not necessarily the case for lower motor neuron, where the cortical control, you know, the headquarters is still working, the speed can still be maintained, but there's weak musculature there. So those are two things that aren't typically associated with that distinction that we don't learn, the degree of weakness and slowness, both of which are points that are patented by me. <laughs> Should we call them the, the Baskin signs? I think you can, yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with that. And um, I mean, that, that's ironic because you're, you're probably the least pompous guy I've like ever met in my life. <laughs> I'm just trying to, I just want two patents. That's all. Yeah. Um, uh, there's probably like a million people listening to this who said, I, I, I thought of that already. And then there's the traditional distinctions. So tone with, with lower motor neuron problems, you have flaccid tone and with upper motor neuron um, problems, you have increased tone later on. So early upper motor neuron dysfunction does not have spastic tone necessarily. So that can be a misleading distinction. And then, of course, reflexes. So hyperreflexia upper motor neuron and loss of reflexes or hyporeflexia lower motor neuron and then disinhibited reflexes like the what we call the Babinski sign or the extensor plantar response. All right, great. So just reviewing there, the distinction between upper motor neuron versus lower motor neuron, there's the classic things that we learn about in medical school, and that's that in upper motor neuron lesion, you have increased reflexes, and in lower motor neuron, of course, you have decreased reflexes. Uh, in terms of muscle tone, upper motor neuron, at least delayed, you will get increase uh, muscle tone, although that may not happen initially, for example, when they present to the emergency department with a fresh stroke. In terms of muscle tone, you'll have decreased muscle tone in the lower motor neuron cases. In upper motor neuron, Babinski signs present, and lower motor neuron, Babinski sign is absent. And then the two great, uh, we'll call them Baskin's signs <laughs> that you mentioned are that the degree of weakness is almost always more in lower motor neuron compared to upper motor neuron, and that upper motor neuron weakness often comes with slowness. For example, if you ask them to do some foot tapping, they'll be very slow at that. I want to talk a little bit more about lower motor neuron disease because they comprise sort of all the neuromuscular disorders that we're going to talk about, and specifically how you distinguish a peripheral neuropathy from a myopathy from a neuromuscular junction problem. Let's say you're convinced that your patient has a lower motor neuron disease because reflexes are down, muscle tone is down, Babitsky's absent, they've got profound weakness. Now you have to sort out whether it's a peripheral neuropathy versus a myopathy versus a neuromuscular junction problem. So Dr. Baskin, how do you sort that out? This is going back to what we spoke about earlier. So one of the first things to think about is whether there's a sensory involvement. So the peripheral nerves have both motor and sensory fibers in them. And the sensory fibers are usually more susceptible to an insult be it demyelinating insult like in GBS or with a peripheral neuropathy. So usually sensory symptoms come first in a peripheral neuropathy. That's why your Guillain-Barre patient starts with paresthesias or numbness and then becomes weak. 
you could just say the sensory nerves are weaker than the motor nerves, no pun intended. So that would be one tip-off that you're dealing with a neuropathy versus a myopathy or a neuromuscular junction problem. A myopathy and neuromuscular junction problem are going to be pure motor problems. Myopathies are usually painful. Um, they're usually symmetrical. They're usually proximal. And neuromuscular junction disorders, because they're systemic, meaning there's an antibody that's been created against the acetylcholine receptor, the symptoms won't be confined to the legs typically. They can be, but usually you're going to have problems elsewhere in the body. If your legs are involved, if your arms are involved, you're likely, as George said, he, he kind of pandered it as a descending problem. You're likely to have involvement of the ocular muscles or swallowing muscles. And then I think lastly is that, of course, a neuromuscular junction problem by one of the sine qua nons is that there's fluctuation. Again, not always, but typically the patient will have fluctuating weakness. Peripheral neuropathies usually strike the longest nerves in the body first. So weakness from a peripheral neuropathy will typically start distally. Whereas with a myopathy, the big muscles, which are the proximal muscles, will be the most symptomatic. One has to remember that GBS both is a neuropathy and also a radiculopathy. It also does affect nerve roots, so you can have early proximal involvement. But in general, when we're talking about a neuropathy versus a myopathy, there's a distinction between more distal and proximal weakness, respectively. When you see somebody with, that you're suspecting a myopathy in the emergency room, I think one pearl is to look at their medication list and you'd be surprised how often they're on a statin and you check their CK and it's in the thousands. So check their medication list specifically for statins, but also amiodarone and steroids can cause it. And of course, alcohol, which is probably the number one drug that we see in the emergency room can also cause a myopathy. Good pearls there. Absolutely. I want to go back, Dr. Baskin, to what you were talking about. You mentioned to distinguish a neuropathy versus a myopathy. Uh, that the neuropathies tend to involve distal muscle groups while the myopathies more often involve the proximal muscles. How do you actually figure that out on physical exam? You know, on history, you can ask, you know, do you have trouble getting up from a chair? So that's more proximal. Um, you know, are you dropping your coffee cup? That's more distal. But how do you actually objectively sort that out on physical exam, the proximal muscle group versus the distal muscle groups? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So did you guys know that there's a pronator drift for the legs? No. Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, most people don't. So um, there's something called the Mingazzini's maneuver. And actually, Barre of Guillaume Barre, he also had a version of this. So basically, I mean, it's not that complicated, but both of them have patents. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um so we're going to work on your patent. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you have the patient lie on their back and you ask them to lift their legs off the bed. You might have to help them to get the correct positioning. And so their, their legs are flexed at the thighs and flexed at the knees. So basically they're holding their legs up in an L shape and they dorsiflex their legs. You have them hold their legs there as long as they can. And a weak side will go down on one side or the other. And patients who have proximal weakness will have a really difficult 
time doing this. It's a little bit more difficult than doing a pronator drift type test because if people have weak abdominal musculature, which a lot of elderly people do, the test will be quite hard for them. But you know, if you have a healthy young patient who can't do that, you know they have proximal muscle weakness. So that's one just like quick way to very globally assess it. Another good way of assessing proximal muscle weakness with a patient lying down is to lift their foot up for them. So you're holding up the foreleg for them and then put your hand against their thigh and ask them to bring their knee to their nose. And the hip flexors are very strong muscles. You should not be able to overcome them. So that's to check the proximal musculature. And then a good way of quickly checking the distal musculature in the leg is have the patient repetitively tap their foot against the frame of the bed on the bottom. And, uh, you know, that involves quick dorsi and plantar flexion. And, you know, you have, they start tapping and then you ask them to tap louder and bigger, louder and bigger and faster. And you'll quickly see if someone's got weakness there. In addition to checking traditionally for segmental motor power by having them resist you. All right. So in our general approach here to patients with decreased power, we've talked about the pattern. We've talked about the timing. We've talked about associated symptoms, upper motor neuron from lower motor neuron. Dr. Baskin, how do you put this all together in your physical exam? So, you know, we've talked about some of the historical features. We're emergency doctors. We need to be able to do a motor exam quickly. How do you suggest that we do this in the emergency department in just a couple of minutes? Yeah, I think the way people think about the neurologic examination is they're so intimidated by it because it's taught in such a complex and um, difficult way. And it's not what people do in daily practice, even urologists. You know, we use the specific parts of the exam as different tests, and we include them or don't include them based on the the patient's presentation or, you know, the pretest probability, so to speak. So I think for the emergency room doctor to pick up, you know, the diagnoses you really don't want to miss, uh, stroke, spinal cord injury, Guillain-Barre syndrome, myasthenia, I think a good quick screening neurologic exam, motor exam, is paramount. So the first thing I would say is forget about the segmental motor exam. Then I'm going to call your second tier motor exam. You should never be starting to do a segmental motor exam, meaning five, four plus four, four minus three, with having the patient resist you with each. You should never do that until you've done the big exam or the screening exam. The gross exam. Yeah, the gross exam. So I think everyone would probably agree with me that you, you know, after you've uh, looked at facial symmetry and power, which you can do very easily by asking the patient to close their eyes as tightly as they can, like someone's throwing sand in their eyes, give you a big smile, puff out their cheeks. Although often, you know, motor weakness in the face is evident from the patient talking to you. So sometimes that's not even necessary. And sometimes you can go straight to starting with a pronator drift. The pronator drift needs to be done properly, which means the patient needs to extend their elbows, fingers together, and then they have to hold it there for at least 30 seconds. You know, you're not going to pick up subtle weakness if you do it for five seconds or 10 seconds. What you're looking for is you're looking for the nascent or rudimentary arm that's going into like a fully spastic position. If you think of like, 
someone who's had a terrible stroke walking down the street and their fist is curled in, flexed at the wrist, fingers are flexed, elbows flexed, the shoulders abducted. They're basically like cradling their arm against them. And you go to the opposite of that as the pronator, the arm in the, the position for the pronator drift. The very beginning subtle signs of the pronator drift will be like a cupping of the hand, so flexion of the fingers, and then the hand slowly starting to pronate. That's the true abnormality of the pronator drift. And sometimes you'll see, it's called the digiti minimi sign, the pinky separating from the other fingers. If you know you just pause and take time to very carefully look at that in a patient, you'll pick up subtle weakness that way. That's the pronator drift. Downward drift is usually not due to a corticospinal tract problem because that indicates that there's shoulder abduction weakness or the patient's feigning. So, you know, they have a shoulder problem or they're feigning weakness or they have proximal weakness, not from a corticospinal tract problem. Okay, and then the next two things I don't think most people do, but they, I think, are the most important because these pick up the corticospinal tract slowing I was talking about. So one is the forearm roll. Patient makes fists and they roll their forearms around one another in front of them um, nice and quick. And they do that for a few seconds, 10 seconds, and then you say now reverse direction and they go the other way. And if you have a lesion that's affecting, say, your left arm, so your, your left arm has an upper motor neuron problem, it's going to be slow. And so the right arm is going to start orbiting around the slow left arm. And this becomes very easy to see. Like the more you do it with normal patients, you'll see the abnormal patients very easily. If they pass that test, I move on to the pointer fingers. So digit number two, extended. So I ask the patient, point at me with both hands and then roll one finger around the other. So in front of them. So again, they're doing the same thing they did with the forearms, but now they're doing it with the second digits and then reverse it. And again, you'll see the strong arm orbiting around the weak arm. So those are very good ways of picking up subtle motor weaknesses, especially of upper motor neuron in the arms. So far, you're like less than a minute into your exam. You've done the pronator drift, the forearm roll, the first finger roll. And then that's your screening exam for motor problems in the upper extremities. And then in the lower extremities, you can do the Mingazzini's maneuver, which I explained, where the patient puts their legs up in the air in like an L-shaped position with their ankles dorsiflexed and holds them there for as long as they can, maybe 15 to 20 seconds. And then foot tapping, which is usually best done with the patient sitting so their feet are flat on the floor, their heels on the floor. My instruction is, you know, tap your feet like you're listening to some good down-home country music. I went to medical school in Dallas, so maybe here you would say like a good, uh, I don't know, Nova Scotia music. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you look at the speed of foot tapping. And um, so, you know, the weak side is going to be slower and uh, foot tapping is going to be slower. So once you've done that, then you can go and do the exam that everyone does, where they go and do a segmental motor exam on each segment of the body and reflexes and uh, plantar responses. Amazing. So just reviewing there, there's the obvious facial weakness that you're going to get them to squeeze their their eyes shut, uh, like there's a, a dust storm. Uh, you're going to get them smile and puff out their cheeks. It takes two seconds. Pronator drift. 
some of the nice subtleties there. We're actually not only looking for the the pronator drift, but we're looking for the fingers flexing and we're looking for the fifth finger to drift away from the rest of the fingers. Uh, Then there's the forearm roll and you're looking for one of the forearms to start orbiting the other one. And then the index finger roll, same thing. And then the, who was it? Meniski? Mingazzini. Mingazzini. The Mingazzini. Uh, I, I can never remember the names. Let, let's call it the lower extremity uh, drift test. Yeah, exactly. And then finally, the the foot tapping. Those are some really great things. And again, what we're talking about is the general motor exam. And if suffice to say that if you find all of those to be perfectly normal, then it's rare that we'll have to go on to the segmental exam. That's correct. And that's actually been studied and well-validated. So you're very unlikely to pick up weakness in a patient who presents to the emergency room on your segmental motor examination if they pass those tests properly. I would include their reflexes and the extensor plantar responses. If they go through all that, then I don't think you need to do a segmental motor exam unless the patient has a specific complaint. You know, my wrist is weak or painful or yeah. Right. Got it. Okay. Um, And one little question I have about the motor exam. I've been told before that grip strength is near useless. And it's the thing that is done on pretty much every triage note. Uh, Someone complains of weakness on every triage note where it could be a stroke. uh, They document the grip strength. Is there any value to the grip strength? I agree with that. I sometimes, um, the anecdote I say is if you're a monkey and your brain gets completely decerebrated, the last thing to go is the things you use to hang onto the branch. (laughs) And so I feel like grip strength is, uh, you know, even with patients who are very uh, weak, the grip strength can be maintained. And so I don't think it's a good test for us. I I mean, often it is, it does pick things up. I'm I'm not completely poo-pooing it but I don't think it's a good or validated part of the exam. The tests I just told you about have been validated and studied. And so I don't think grip strength is a useful test for us. So that's a wonderful eye-opening way of looking at the motor exam for emergency physicians. I'm going to start practicing this myself. And I'm sure after I've done it a few times, it'll, it'll be easy as cake. So I think we've uh, talked about history and physical almost to death in our approach to the patient with decreased power. I just I want to start talking about lab tests. Now, the reason why we spoke about history and physical in such detail is because for these patients who present with decreased power, it really is almost always 99% in the history and physical. It's not the lab tests that are going to make the diagnosis. However, there are some lab tests that we do need to think about. So Dr. Porphyrus, when it comes to lab tests for the patient who presents uh, with decreased power, there's many non-neuromuscular causes that do require lab tests, like patients with sepsis and urinary tract infections and all kinds of other things. But just zeroing in on you've now got a patient who has decreased power, and we're not talking about this just this sort of general weak and dizzy patient, what lab tests should we be thinking about in particular for these patients? 
I think the most important thing is to do a point of care glucose. You'd be surprised how many times somebody comes in with a one-sided weakness and you check and you're about to activate the code stroke and you do a sugar and it's zero. Uh, so hypoglycemia is also a, a great mimicker. So anybody who comes in with any sort of weakness, I always check a point of care glucose. A, B, C, D, E, F, G is A, B, C, don't ever forget the glucose. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I've been almost fooled many times with stroke-like symptoms, and it's actually all due to hypoglycemia. So that's a must for everybody. The only other thing I would probably do is add a CK just to, to rule out your myositis and probably check your electrolytes, specifically potassium, because again, all those, the periodic paralysis can either be too low potassium or too high potassium, and maybe even a TSH just to rule out a thyroid disease. All right. So that's a little bit about test for neuromuscular disease, glucose, CK, lights, maybe uh, a TSH. What about an LP? So of course, we'll do an LP for someone who we suspect has a subarachnoid hemorrhage or someone who we suspect has meningitis, um, encephalitis, et cetera. But for these patients who we suspect have uh, a peripheral neuropathy or a neuromuscular disease, which of these patients require a lumbar puncture in the emergency department? Do any of them? I think if it involves ascending paralysis, so specifically if you're worried about Guillain-Barre syndrome or transverse myelitis, the LP may help you here. Uh, so with Guillain-Barre syndrome, you expect to have high protein in the CSF with normal white cells, as opposed to with transverse myelitis, you'll see what they call pleocytosis, which basically just means that they have lots of white cells. Dr. Baskin, anything to add there? Yeah, so I think George is absolutely correct the lumbar puncture is useful for distinguishing the albuminocytological dissociation, so high protein with normal cells in GBS. Was that one word, albumino? Say that again. I that say it to incredible. myself before bed. It's the longest word I've ever heard. Albuminocytological, and then just fall asleep. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, yeah, that's where the, Sorry, you know, we you're getting an antibody response in the CSF, so you have high protein but normal cells. That's in GBS, right? Correct. Yeah. And in transverse myelitis, as George said, there's a mild elevation of the white count, so that the pleocytosis. Did you not give George a hard time because he maybe is more facile in using Greek when he said pleocytosis? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think the only thing I'd say is that there's a timing issue. So if the patient presents acutely with Guillain-Barre symptoms, like they're at the point where they have numbness and some loss of reflexes, you may not yet see the high protein. It may take some days to develop. So I think you want to decide on the timing of your LP depending on when the patient's presenting. You might want, it may be useless to do it too early and instead I'd opt for a lumbar puncture. The other thing I might say is if possible, it's often not possible, it's often useful to get the MRI before you get an LP because sometimes the LP will cause some gadolinium enhancement that might confuse the radiologist who's uh, looking for signs of inflammation in the spinal cord. Okay. So suffice to say that uh, the lumbar puncture has a role in diagnosing GBS and transverse myelitis. However, from an emergency department perspective, we have to think carefully about the timing because if we LP them too early for GBS, then they could just require a second LP later on in their hospital stay. And for transverse myelitis, it's really the MRI where the money is.
that about wraps it up for part one for this two-part podcast on acute weakness in the emergency department. In part two, we're going to dig into the specific diagnoses of Guillain-Barre syndrome and the mimics of Guillain-Barre syndrome, as well as myasthenia gravis and the mimics of myasthenia gravis, because those are really the two big, scary, life-threatening diagnoses that we need to act on quickly in the emergency department. 